In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am excited to welcome on the filmmaking team behind the documentary Howard, which chronicles the life of Howard Ashman. So joining me will be Don Hahn, the film's director, producer, and writer, who served as an producer on many classic Disney animated films, including The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. And I'll also be speaking with Laurie Korngable, a producer on Howard, who has been part of many different Disney projects over the years, including an associate producer for the film Maleficent. So great conversation with Don and Laurie about the development of the Howard documentary. So let's get right into it. Joining me on Notably Disney is the team behind the spectacular, raw, and evocative documentary about one of the most beloved lyricists and an instrumental figure in Disney music and animation history, Howard, which just debuted on Disney Plus after its initial premiere in 2018, focuses on the life of the late Howard Ashman, who's responsible for some of our favorite Disney songs. And I'd like to welcome on Don Hahn, who is Howard's director, producer, and writer, and Laurie Korngiebel, also a producer on Howard. Um, this is also the team uh, who you may remember from the Waking Sleeping Beauty documentary, which is a, a favorite in my household. Thank you for being on Notably Disney, Don and Laurie. Oh, thank, thank you. you. It's our pleasure. Well, there's a lot of different places where we can begin, and I have a number of questions and a number of things I'd like to talk with you both about, but let me first be among um, the large groups of people who are probably offering a lot of um, praise and appreciation for this documentary. I know it's been long in the works and it's only been available to um, a handful of folks um, prior to its Disney Plus debut. So congratulations on a, a really successful effort that I know is going to be a, a staple for many on Disney Plus. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a it's um overwhelming um, response and, I, and it just goes back to Howard. You know, he was an amazing guy whose story hadn't been told and um, you know, we feel um, 
really happy with the response, obviously, and uh, pretty humbled by being able to tell his story finally. Well, I mentioned um, a minute ago about your prior documentary, uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty, about a, from a decade ago. It's hard to believe it's been uh, that long. But I, I remember as I watched it and in some of the footage um, from the making of and and, and hearing some um, conversations uh, involving the team, you, you both, I know it was really integral in that particular documentary that you didn't want to have talking heads. You wanted to really immerse viewers in the scene at that time and place in Disney history. So I'm wondering with Howard, um, which has both a lot of old footage and audio, um, as well as some um, new interviews, how did both of you find that balance in using old footage and audio and um, other material complemented by relatives and close colleagues and friends sharing their memories? Well, it was a... Um it was a choice kind of that grew out of um, experimentation, I suppose, more than anything. Um, a style similar to that worked really well with Waking Sleeping Beauty. And to be able to um, use it again was really fortunate because one of the things we like to do is transport you as an audience to that time and have you be uh, in those recording sessions or sitting at those tables. And that kind of um, voyeuristic experience, uh, for lack of a better word, is something that's really um, immersive for the audience. And um, we didn't want to interrupt that with um, high definition, glossy footage of old guys reminiscing. You know, that's, that's like, um, I think it's a little lazy to do that in a documentary like this. And it's more fun to be able to, you know, stay with Howard and let him tell his own story. For sure. And I think that also kind of speaks to the value of that the, the people who know the material most are the, the people themselves. And that in this case, um, Howard being the central figure. Could, could you talk about what each of you wanted to bring to this particular project? I know, um, Don, in your case, you, you worked with him and, and Lori. Um, I understand that you learned about him through, um, through your colleagues and, and through this project. So considering your different vantage points, what were your intentions going into this? Well, as you can imagine, it really came out of wanting to um, and not so much pay tribute to him, although that's a part of it, but to really be able to tell a story that hadn't been told. There's no biographies. There's no American Masters series. There's no books or anything. Um, and so to be able to uh, to do that was really important. And I also felt like 30 years had gone by and I started to look at, at you know my watch and just thought, my God, it's been a long time. And if somebody doesn't start to do it, pretty soon the spokespeople are going to be gone. And the story is going to evaporate. And I think that's what motivated us to want to dive into it. And and also, we like what was important to me was to try to get personal stories from his family and his um, closest colleagues. We didn't necessarily need um, Broadway theater critics or uh, professors of uh, journalism or anything else to comment on his career. You can read that, uh, certainly, I suppose, on the Internet. But we wanted to get people who had personally worked with him and knew him as actors or uh, members of his family to try to make it more of a personal story about who he was. Definitely. And also I can say, you know, since you go into these movies loving them so much and being a fan of them, but never knowing who the people were that made the movies and what they brought to the table and how much they impacted what you see on screen and the songs you sing, you know, throughout your entire lives. So to be able to dive into that and tell those people's stories, especially Howard's, who has such an incredible story. Um, it, it was a, an honor to be able to be a part of it and to get to tell his story. 
So what were the roots of this documentary? I know a little bit of Waking Sleeping Beauty touches on his life, and it almost seems like a, a tease or a prequel um, in a sense. But at what point had you both committed yourselves to embarking on this really cool endeavor? Well, committed is a good word. Um, <laughs> it's we. We did have a little bit of Howard in Waking Sleeping Beauty, but that became a story more about executives and, um, you know, a, a number of things uh, aside from Howard. But we always had more material on Howard, we thought. Um, and, and then there wasn't any immediate urge to make another documentary at that time. And about four years ago, I guess it's been, I had lunch with Howard's sister, Sarah, and just said, I, like halfway through my cheeseburger, I just said, I'm going to have to make a movie about Howard, I think. And um, I was kind of surprised I said that, and so was she. And so she was very nice and said, oh, that's lovely. And um, and and I actually, it, so it was impulsive in a funny way, but it was also obs an obsession. I just, once we got into it, and Laurie and I started at the Library of Congress in, um, in D.C., where Howard's papers are, um, it's a rich topic. And at first I remember thinking, well, maybe this is a short subject. Maybe this is something that's just a webisode or something. But immediately you see the, the amount of material and the amount of interesting things in his professional and personal life, and it became much more. Um, so it, 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 the story grew, um, and, and I think I was, I was always compelled by the idea that, it, that nobody knew this story. And, and even this morning, my inbox is full of people saying, I had no idea. You know, I, had, I knew his songs, but I had no idea who this man was. So uh, that's really gratifying. You mentioned, Don, about um, talking with Howard's sister, Sarah, and what becomes abundantly clear in watching the documentary is um, how, how important um, she was along with his partner, Bill, in, in his life, and their, their voices and perspectives very much come to the surface through the memories they relay and um, kind of bringing you to that time and place. In what ways, Lori and Don were... Um, these key figures in his life involved in the making of the documentary besides what we just hear um, via the audio clips? Oh, they were instrumental. Um, Don, if you don't mind, I'll jump in. Um, they, they, after Don and I left D.C., as Don mentioned, um, and went through Howard's archives, we went up to New York and spent time with Sarah and Bill and Kyle Rennick and Nancy and and they, you know, would sit down and just have conversations with Don that we recorded. So it was just old friends talking about Howard. And those are the interviews that you hear, um, which was fantastic because, you know, it wasn't, there was no formality to it. It was just literally people talking about someone that they cared about and shared an experience with. And then they opened up, you know, the vaults, if you will, and gave us photographs and home movies and, you know, bits and bobs of audio or anything that they had. And the, the beauty of that is as more and more people found out that we were making this documentary, more and more people came to the forefront and said, hey, you should try talking to this person. This photographer might have something. Or you should go to Indiana University. There's a blogger. And then the blogger said, hey, they might have footage over at the theater department. So it, it because Howard was so beloved, Don and I were very lucky and that so many people were willing to help us along the way and share as much as they could in terms of not only stories about Howard, but video and audio and still photography and anything that may or may, may have existed at that time that they had. So we were, we were blessed um, in that regard. So ultimately, how I, I know 
um, in the finished product, the the ninety minute film, there's only so much that um, can be illustrated there. What was there stuff left on the cutting room floor in terms of interviews you conducted or really interesting pieces of information that simply didn't make it? There were um, not too much though. You know, um, we were lucky that um, Howard had a lot of interviews and um, some video. There's a few short interviews that uh, didn't make it in because they weren't that relevant. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I think our first cut of the movie was probably three hours long or a little bit longer. And so you trim it down to just what the essence is. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, it's putting a lifetime in 90 minutes is the challenge. And um, and yet for a we wanted to make a general audience movie. We didn't want to make inside baseball. Um, so to be able to get it to a point where people would be. Um, interested in the material but not zone out because it was too detailed uh, was kind of the balancing act we were after but there's some great things I there's a great story Laurie I don't know if you remember the Tennessee Williams story about Howard going to the theater and he he tells it on a scratchy piece of audio tape about going to see a Tennessee Williams play one night and um, Tennessee Williams was in the audience and so they went out for drinks afterwards can you imagine that table um so things like that I think are amazing and I it's the kind of thing I probably should put on another um, blog, webisode or something someday just to be able to talk about those little sidebars um, in his life. And he has, you know, he had so many fans. We found letters like from Jackie Gleason um, in the archives saying, God, I went to I went to a little shop and I loved it, um, you know, or, or Hal Prince or Steven Spielberg or whoever. Um, so he was, you know, he, he had a following even back then. Wow, that's really impressive. And I'm curious as to what what were some of the most uh, interesting pieces of information or records that you were able to curate through uh, reviewing his archives in the Library of Congress? Well, um, Laura, you can expound on this. I think one the, the most interesting was that letter from um, Jeffrey Katzenberg <clears> that kind of outlines the kinds of things he would have done at Disney. Yeah, and definitely, you know, so... The Jeffrey letter, obviously, that plays a role in the film that, you know, is basically recruiting Howard to come come to play at Disney. And here's what we have going on and what we'd love to involve you with. And then for me personally, I remember sitting next to Don and coming across, you know, the call sheets for um, for Little Shop and um, or sorry, excuse me, for Smile and seeing Jody's name and knowing that Jody then went on to do. Um, Little Mermaid. And so all of a sudden you're seeing notes about Jody during a call for, you know, a Broadway show called Smile that you, you know, the history of it. And that was very exciting. Um, just little things like that. Howard took copious amount of notes on all of, um, on all of the call sheets and scripts and, um, and, you know, little note that you see in the film about part of your world, just right in the exact area of the script where the song ended up being. Those kind of things you just can't even imagine exist, and then you come across it, and it's just, you feel like you've found, you know, the biggest hidden treasure on Earth. No kidding. And uh, you mentioned um, the, the Katzenberg recruitment letter, which I thought was a really fascinating artifact that um, appeared in the, in the film, could you talk about, um, you mentioned, Don, I think, the various projects that were envisioned um, to involve Howard. One of them um, that caught my eye, even though it's just briefly on screen, was a sequel to Mary Poppins. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was um, something that uh, the studio wanted to do even back then. And really, it's it's the studio opening its doors <clears throat> and saying, whatever you want, you know, here, here's our um, vault. And you guys know what you're doing. Just, you know, here's some ideas we'd like you to look at. But there's a big, you know, a big bunch of ideas. And some of them were live action films um, and some musicals, some remakes. And he really, in the end, gravitated towards animation because I think the process was very familiar to him in animation. It was... Um, very collaborative, very familiar for some reason. Um, partly because the management and animation were theater people. Peter Schneider, who um, came from theater and the Olympic Arts Festival and uh, was um, the company manager in Little Shop. And he was running animation at the time. So it was familiar faces. And, um, and the process itself lent itself to, um, you know, how we're being very involved and collaborative, which is something that was we all wanted. For sure. And I'm thinking, too, as far as um, just ways of gathering information. Um, obviously, we talked about the Library of Congress um, uh, involving the uncovering of some really cool stuff. Walt Disney Archives, Did you were you able to glean um, any interesting insights from there? Um, there's not a lot there. Uh, it's interesting because... Um, the animation research library and part of the archives would have a few things, but they're mainly storing artwork. Um, most of the tapes and audio tapes were either with the uh, Library of Congress, a few with Alan Menken, um, and then a lot of it was just pounding the pavement trying to find interesting things. One of the last minute arrivals was we, we looked for two years for some audio or video or anything from the Little Mermaid press junket in 1989 down in Orlando, Florida. Because we knew Howard was there for two days. We knew there were 50 journalists there. So there had to be something. And we couldn't find a thing. Lori called everybody um, on the planet. And finally, at the 11th hour, um, a friend of a friend said, gee, I heard you were making a um, Howard documentary. And I was there and interviewed him. Would you like to hear my tape? And uh, I almost fell off my chair. And so he sent it to me. And it was great. It was 15 minutes of... Howard and Alan talking about Mermaid. So those kinds of finds, um, in the end, are the most valuable. Um, sometimes when you're working on a movie, you don't think of the value of that material because you, you know, we certainly didn't walk around saying, wow, this is really a terrific golden age, isn't it, buddy? Um, you know, it's, <laughs> you just don't feel that way. You're just trying to get the movie done. Um, so some things weren't kept. Luckily, Howard kept everything. And uh, so his archives are really rich and we got so much of it from that. And then so much of it, as Laurie said, from, um, oh man, from, um, you know, just people who had encountered him and wanted to hang on to that media. And, and just to put an emphasis on that uh, tape for Little Mermaid, we literally got that tape, no exaggeration, maybe two days before we were finishing the film with sound and yeah. just you know, it was one of those screaming, jumping up and down like you're a little kid moment of, I can't believe we finally have something. And then, uh, oh my gosh, how are we going to get this in in the short amount of time we do? Um, we have left. And so, you know, it was it was the highs and excitement of making the, um, the documentary. Those things happened a lot. So, 
That's really cool. I, I remember as I was watching the documentary the other night thinking, I, I've never seen any of this uh, press footage. Wow, this is pretty remarkable. But I think it speaks to what you're saying through the process of developing a documentary. You can locate um, sometimes very unexpectedly really um, vital content that has been uh, shadowed for many years. Yeah, and it is an obsession. Yeah, you know, we. Yeah. I would email Lori at two o'clock in the morning, and she would be up searching the internet, and so would I. And <laughs> you know, we like at the Library of Congress, we found that there's a there's a wonderful hour long tape of Tina Turner talking to Howard, and she's making you know sandwiches for lunch, and they're talking about the script he was writing for I Tina. Um, we found an answering machine tape where Howard's talking to the directors of Little Mermaid, and you know, so these it's so unexpected. But once you find a few of those you're sure that there's others out there and yeah. um and there are and so you just keep looking and calling and we scoured you know europe and england and you know anywhere we could just to try to find those special little gems so kind of along those lines um Lori and don i know that the production it's a small small team of people who made this can you talk about your kind of uh, relation, working relationship and how you essentially identify what are all the tasks that we want to accomplish in making this documentary happen. So kind of the behind the scenes um, notion of there's interviews to be conducted, information to gather. What does that look like um, on a daily basis for both of you during that process? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of screaming and no, there, um, it's not, it's, it, it's pretty collegial and it's very small. And, and I think it's small for a reason. We have basically three key people, myself, Lori, and our editor, Stephen. Uh, Stephen Yao, who's an amazing uh, editor. And then people would come and go. We have, a, there's probably another 20 people that would be, you know, for example, like um, a woman named Monica Zierhut, who was our music um, kind of producer and go-to person or, um, you know, sound mixers or composers or whatever. So people would come and go, but that, core unit uh, we intentionally kept small because for some reason you can the information can flow faster uh, there's no meetings there's no memos you just sit we sit in an open plan uh, office space and so every conversation on every telephone call can be heard and there's no secrets and the um, movie can flow pretty quickly that way and then each of us kind of have our own um gifts that we bring. Obviously, Stephen is our editor and um, and he has the patience of a saint going through all this material. Um, Don is a, a, a guru. He's a magician when it comes to finding things on the internet and um, and doing research. It's, it's, it's a gift and obviously an amazing storyteller. Um, I enjoy doing research as well and I'm trying to learn Don's uh, stealthy gifts. And <laughs> And I, um, I'm highly organized. So, um, and then I tended to write very, um, hopefully pleasant emails to people, cold calling them saying, hi, my name is Lori and we're making a documentary on Howard Ashman and hope to get a response to try to find, you know, material across in some instances, as John said, the globe. So, um, so we each brought a little something to the table and all of that balanced each other out really nicely. Um, so that, we just knew what we needed to do. Um, the interviews came first, as did the Library of Congress. So we started with having the interviews and having a, a basic pad of information in terms of media and photographs and things of that nature. And then from there, we just let the story tell us which direction to go. And we had some terrific collaborators, just in, in as you can imagine, in terms of 
um, lawyers, attorneys who would just help us navigate things like music rights and, um, uh, you know, using copyright law, fair use law, all those things that you need in a documentary. And they became really close collaborators. And I, you know, I don't have any negative feelings about attorneys. They're great. Um, but this became more than that. It became, you know, a, uh, a part of the family, so to speak, and just helping us navigate through all the issues when you're trying to uh, find and use all this kind of obscure tape. And there's 23 songs in the movies. So there's a lot of music rights issues that we had to navigate. Um, but it was worth it because we had those great collaborators along the way. 100%. Well, and I know even watching the credits, I was I was taking note of, wow, there are a lot of different sources that you drew from um, to share this content. So thanks for giving some context to, to that piece. Uh, sure. I, I wanted to, th there were so many creative elements um, of not just telling Howard's story um, in the traditional sense, but also um, some really unique touches. And uh, I'd like to kind of highlight a few of those and get some um, thoughts on that. One, one of them was um, in an early segment in the documentary when um, Howard's sister, Sarah, talks about Howard's childhood. And the visuals we see on screen are not just photographs, but also the examples of the toys um, that he would stage in a very uh, production-like format. Can you give some context on that? Because I thought that was a really interesting way of presenting the material. Well, we we talked one day, I mean, we literally, the three of us sat around and said, we have to come up with some sense of fantasy for this so it doesn't feel too dark. And, um, you know, it's a story that has a sad ending and we didn't want it to feel... Um, you know, just modeling all the way through. And um, so the inspiration, I think, came from other films that had done similar things. Um, films where maybe you have kind of a, um, a, you know, a sequence that shows what's in somebody's head or what a child might think or whatever. And um, and that kind of motivated us to try um, something like what we did. I, one afternoon, I just set up on a tabletop a bunch of, uh, you know, playing cards and a couple of toys I had around the studio and just tried it. And um, it was really compelling. You just felt like, oh, you can see that this this guy, Howard, was born to do what he did. And um, so that, that kind of matured into the idea that you see in the film. And Lori did some, um, you know, searching on eBay to find period cowboy <laughs> toys. And I stayed up late to glue <laughs> glitter to them. And um, so we set up this little tabletop set and, uh, and photographed it to create that feeling. And... Um, I'm glad we did because it just leavens the movie a little bit and reminds you even at the end when we reprise it that um, Howard was this you know little boy inside that just wanted to tell stories and I think the audience relates to that because we're all kind of that way I think we all have that in us and we might uh, bury it when we turn 14 or something but um, we all were that way and we all have this playful sense inside of us and we can relate to that in terms of uh, Howard's story. Well, I, th I think for one, it, it, that part came out really nicely. I thought it was, uh, it was very uh, spirited and um, it gave that kind of sweetness um, to the overall tone, which unfortunately, as, um, as we discover, um, concludes in, in this you know, untimely passing. How do, you, how do both of you as filmmakers find ways of balancing that tone? Because there's such beauty in his life and then um, because of... Um, AIDS, um, such darkness and, and sadness associated with it too. Um, I, I can imagine you want to authentically present someone's story, but uh, make sure that the tone feels appropriate as well. 
Well, we both come from uh, animation background mm -hmm. and we're both used to doing that. You know, I, I, I think if you look at Beauty and the Beast or, um, you know, you name it, any of Walt Disney's films, they are a bell curve of um, emotions and there's life and death and there's evil and good and there's fantasy and childlike behaviors and all of the uh, Carl Jung archetypes are represented. So I think we were kind of used to doing that and not being afraid of it, you know, not being afraid of showing Mufasa dying or that kind of thing. Um, this is part of life. And, and those, those elements of any story always have to be taken in context. So even though Howard's story had a very um, sad ending, uh, you have to take that in context of the whole 90 minutes of the movie and say, this is only one component of the whole movie. Um, that's the other reason why we wanted to create this kind of childlike epilogue uh, that kind of uh, was uplifting at the end of the film so it didn't you know, stop on a dark note. But I, I think part of our storytelling training really comes out of animation, which is much more of a medium of caricature and can really use those um, primal elements of storytelling of good and evil and happy and sad in, um, in ways that we were able to uh, use in our documentary filmmaking. Definitely. And, and Howard's sister had told us, you know, Howard had a, a fantastic life and a, what an incredible gift he had and, and what he was able to do, even if it was, in, unfortunately, a tragically sad short period of time. His life itself was fantastic. And so we really wanted to make a celebration of that. Um, yeah, yes, the, the ending is tragic and we all wish we could have had more time with him and seen what he could have done. But to be able to celebrate everything that he did do and brought to the world, um, that was something we definitely wanted to get across. Well, I think as a viewer, it, it's very clear that um, his life was um, just, uh, he, he touched people in such important ways through his work and through his being as well. And, and I think the, the human element of it really comes across through the way his story was shared. Mm, great, thank you. Yes, definitely, thank you. So, Laurie and Don, I, I imagine because you, you had a lot of information um, to sort through and, and to gather um, uh, original material as well, and, and you, you each have distinct um, connections to um, Howard Ashman through, through this project, Don personally and, and Laurie um, through working as, for the company as well. What were the most surprising facts that you learned about Howard Ashman during this project? Well, the the craziest thing to me still is that he's a kid just out of graduate school in Indiana who moves to New York, and which is crazy enough, and then starts his own theater. Like, who does that? You know, and, and he's not a businessman, although he gets that. But he starts his own theater so he can put on his own material that he's writing. And out of that comes God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. And out of that comes um, Little Shop of Horrors. So that was... I, you know, I didn't really know all that story. And I can imagine myself in my 20s moving to New York and opening a theater. I would have never been able to do that. And, you know, it's not that he had money. He was from a very middle-class, average family. So, um, but he had the, you know, the passion and the chutzpah to be able to do that. And uh, so that was an amazing um, kind of reveal to show how, you know, just determined he was to do what he did. For me, it was, I couldn't believe it when we saw that photo of How Howard as a child dressed like Aladdin. It just, oh. talk about full circle moment and just, 
I just, I still am in awe of that. And the fact that he manifested that as a child and, you know, and then went on to write some of the songs we know best from Aladdin is, is pretty remarkable. Or Howard editing the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse book. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like crazy to look at those coincidences and, um, you know, realize where he ended up. So, uh, you know, that's what makes the story so fascinating, I think, to see what went into making Howard who he was. And he had a lot of different things. And, you know, and he, he became our mentor. You know, he taught us so much in the end, being able to rewatch some things that I, I put pieces of in Wakey Sleeping Beauty, like his lecture to the animators uh, when he was doing Little Mermaid. Um, you know, there he is, like, teaching us things that we maybe knew intuitively, but nobody had ever made it as clear as Howard did. And he was such a clear communicator. So just hearing those things again and, and hearing him describe, like on the Bill Boggs uh, talk show, you know, of... of um, the Little Shop is is a parody of traditional, um, you know, Broadway musicals. And the second number is the I Want song. And, you know, those kinds of things. It just reminds you of what a student he was of the Broadway musical and how well he could um, exercise that. And then along with that, how crazy he was to m kind of mix that and mash it up with, you know, uh, let's take Hans Christian Andersen and set it to reggae music. Or let's take, um, you know, Aladdin and set it to Cab Galloway or whatever. He, he was able to take these pastiche kind of genres of music and pair them on in really unlikely ways. You know, let's take 50s girl group rock and roll and put it with a Roger Corman movie. You know, those kinds of things are so unconventional, but that was such a um, kind of bellwether of what his work was. It was genius. Yeah, you took, you took the, the words out of my mouth there, Lori. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's... Um, <laughs> He is. Uh, he was a genius, and and I think what you both were illustrating there too is that yes, he's known for his songwriting, but more importantly, perhaps, is he was a storyteller, and mm -hmm. that really comes through via all the um, all the footage you shared. Yeah, yeah, it really was. You know, to be able to, we spent days with him, obviously, on on beating the beast up in a snowy hotel in upstate New York. And um, it, it, it wasn't ever about lyrics in a funny way. It was always about, you know, who's this character? Well, she's kind of like a, the maid in Upstairs, Downstairs. Um, and she's kind of a maternal, you know, it's, it's like the Downton Abbey character kind of. And, you know, you would come up with archetypes that turned out to be Mrs. Potts or the French kind of Maurice Chevalier um, whose original name was Chandal, um, became Lumiere. And, and then Howard would come up with, well, who's, who's the perfect French actor to play that? Well, it's Jerry Orbach from Law and Order. You know? And we would just go, what? But you know, Jerry was a great Broadway star before he made, you know, went on TV or went into movies. And um, so Howard contributed you know, to casting uh, some of those ideas. So it, for sure, there was an amazing team of people around him, you know, directors like Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale on Beauty and the Beast. They're brilliant guys too, but the, um, you know, the spark in many cases would come from Howard. It's pr pretty remarkable. And I, I'm wondering for each of you, what were, what are some like lingering lessons or insights that you gleaned from Howard um, via, via this process that have stayed with you um, you know, years into this process? Mm, that's a good question. Well, 
he had a clarity of thought that I may never have. Uh, so some of it may, you know, have stayed with me just in, in terms of marveling at his, not only clarity of thought, but clarity of being able to express that. Um, and, and I guess what he was a talented guy, but you know, talent is a dime a dozen out there in the real world. And what he put with it was this incredible hard work to learn his craft. And he, you can say on one hand, well, he was just born to do this, and he was, and we showed that. But he also went to Goddard, and he went to Boston University, and he goes to Indiana, where he's writing and directing and producing Snow Queen. So he's he's learning his craft and putting in his 10,000 hours, so to speak, um, before he even gets to New York. And then in New York, he's putting in his 10,000 hours of uh, of learning his craft and it wasn't about failing or succeeding it was just here's a 99 seat theater and we're going to put on some shows and um sometimes that meant he had to do uh, cover copy writing for you know to make ends meet and pay his bills but didn't matter he still kept going and kept learning his craft and that ended up paying huge dividends uh for the rest of his life definitely i think i think the thing i'd like to take from this and hopefully put into my own life is Howard lived his life with such passion, whether it was for his family and friends or work, and literally all the way up to the end, as Alan was saying, you know, he was writing songs in his hospital room, and his love of what he did um, transcended everything and, you know, kept him moving forward up until his very last days, and I think we could all learn a lesson from that. If we live our lives with such passion and really focus on what we love to do, then we will all be richer and better for it. We got this email the other day from Gary Rydstrom, who's the multiple Oscar-winning sound mixer for Steven Spielberg, among many other people. And he's a friend, and he just said how he loved the movie. And he said he left with the lesson that um, we all need to work harder and we all need to put uh, worthwhile things into the world. Mm. Uh, you know, the world is full of a lot of junk, and... Um, and Howard put in worthy, um, worthwhile th work into the world. And I thought, you know, that says it all. That says it all. The world doesn't need more junk. Uh, you know, we all need to put in our, our best, most quality work, whatever that is, um, to try to um, up the planet and make it a better place. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I think those, are, those lessons resonate. And I know I came away from this as... Uh, as a viewer, from uh, thinking to myself, um, how how much I appreciated you conveying the the notion of understanding and appreciation for the people that you work with, because it was very clear that um, everybody connected to him um, in in the workplace setting really valued his gift, but and and also through um, through later on learning about um, his um, his condition that. Uh, there was there was definitely more context behind why um, why things were a bit more challenging in terms of accommodating and going up to New York. And I, I really appreciate you lending that um, element to it, Don and Lori, because I think it really shows that um, people are not only people like Howard Ashman are not only incredibly talented, but also just um, people and 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 there are dif different human issues that they face. So I, I think that's a valuable. Um, takeaway that that I as a viewer came away from it with. Yeah, good, good, good. Well, I, I guess I'm wondering from for both of you at this point. I know um, this documentary is, is now um, fully out and, and available to folks on Disney Plus. 
what's next on your docket? How how do you follow this? How do you follow up with uh, something just as impressive? Because I, I you, you've set <laughs> well, quite quite the bar with Waking Sleeping Beauty and Howard. I know. Well, you know, you don't. I uh, <laughs> you come up with something else. I, I, you know, we've both worked on um, terrific movies over the years, and you, I, you know, I'm, I started out on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and at the end of it, I thought well, that's kind of the end of my career. I'll never do anything like that. And then I went on to Beauty and the Beast and I thought, well, that's the end of my career. I'll never do anything like that. And, you know, you just keep going. So for me as a producer and director, it's um, finding a great story and then finding great collaborators. And that was the key to this movie is great collaborators in terms of um, Stephen and Laurie and also um, a, a larger group of collaborators that were really willing to lend their hand to telling a story. Um, I love telling stories about artistic heroes. There's plenty of sports heroes out in the world and plenty of Michael Jordans, plenty of uh, political heroes. Um, and I think there's too few um, artists, musicians, dancers, chefs, um, whose story haven't been told yet. And I'm a musician, I was a music major in school and I'm a painter and I, I just feel like the uh, contribution that artists makes to culture and society and um, you know, just the well-being of the planet is profound. And so the more I can find those stories of those people and tell them, um, I think the more satisfying it is for me. And so that's kind of the direction where, that I'm looking for right now. And I'm ready to take a vacation. <laughs> that's probably the truth. Well-deserved, Lori. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I want to make sure that I uh, attend to some Disney-related uh, questions um, as it pertains to music and books, because our listeners um, enjoy that and know both of you um, for your contributions um, on that front um, with the, the projects that you've been a part of. So I'm wondering um, if we can kind of go um, back and forth, um, maybe starting with Lori. Um, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Uh, well, that's really a hard question to answer. I would say pre-Mermaid and Beauty, because those two would be the, the top two, um, would probably be, say, Fantasia. Um, so those would be my top three. And, of course, you had to say Beauty and the Beast because Dawn's on the call, right? <laughs> yeah, it's really the only reason, and you can edit that out later. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that is the honest-to-God truth. Beauty and Mermaid... Um, you know, I was in high school and college when those movies came out. So I, those movies mean, as they do to most huge Disney fans, those movies mean a lot. So, and then Fantasia, because it, it's Fantasia. So. Very nice. How about for you, Don? Same question. <laughs> I, I was all about Jungle Book. Um, I had that album and I wore it out and I, I didn't really have that many other albums I felt that way about. But um, the you know putting Louis Prima on the screen um, was enough for me. You know, I just I I you know I, I think I memorized everything about that album, and every line of scat singing and every line that Phil Harris said. So um, yeah, I just thought that was a a pretty brave kind of combination of things. Again, to take Jungle Book, this kind of semi-serious animal story set in India, and um, and, and putting this unlikely um, kind of Louis Prima music against it was fantastic. 
Very nice. Um, next question, starting off with you, Don. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a Disney song, but <clears throat> I, I've had the Hamilton soundtrack stuck in my head <laughs> so much lately. I can't stop, and I keep trying to listen to other things, and then I turn off other music, and I'm right back to you know King George the uh, Third or, or somebody. So um, you know, with with true Disney soundtracks, let me just, let me just try to think. Um, you know, Alan Menken's music, not just because I worked with him, but he has a unbelievable kind of uh, earwig thing where he gets those um, melodies in your head. So, um, you know, pretty much anything that Alan writes is uh, wonderful and toxic for me at the same time. Perfect. Well, I would highly recommend um, check it out on YouTube. There's a Muppet version of, of Hamilton that someone produced. That oh, yeah. has- have you seen that? I have. It's wonderful. Oh, I know what I'm doing as soon as we get off this call. Exactly. It's a must, Lori. How about for you? Same question. Recent, recent Disney song that or stuck. Let me rephrase that. Recent. Uh, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Um, uh, this is going to just sound so cliched, but I was walking. I walk in the evenings when it's getting cooler because we're in Southern California. And there was a spectacular sunset the other night as I was walking around the Rose Bowl, and Col- Colors of the Wind was in my head the entire time. Oh, just, that's beautiful. It was just such a gorgeous, gorgeous sunset, and that was the first thing that popped into my head as I was looking at it. So like, that is the most recent. Perfect. How beautiful. Lori, how about, what about what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Underrated music. Um, well, uh, Don, and this is not, I promise this isn't just because Don is on the phone, but I <laughs> think that the Hunchback of Notre yes. um, score is so exquisite, and I don't think people talk about that as, uh, enough. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. that's my answer, too, and it's not just because we, you know, worked with Stephen and um, Schwartz and Alan on it, but it's, I heard a, a reviewer one time saying, God, Alan Menken's fantastic, but he hasn't really written that breakout score. And I just felt like screaming into the radio, have you listened to Hunchback? <laughs> and it's the way they approached that and produced it. And the, you know, Stephen, um, we hooked up with a Latin scholar um, to investigate um, some of the lyrics that the choruses would sing in Latin. And, and we went to London and we... Um, you know, found a cathedral with a pipe organ that we could overdub and have like authentic pipe organ sounds. Um, but then the pipe organ was out of tune because what is now a 440 wasn't a 440 when the pipe organ was built. <clears throat> so we had to slip the tape and slow it down so the pipe organ would be in tune. And, you know, all the, the details like that that went into it. And then just simply on top of it, the performances, people like Tom Hulse and, you know, it just, just the... Um, expression that's in that and the the depth of that score i just think is uh underrated and people that do discover it are uh, just you know smitten with it for sure i'm i'm in that club so that's why i shrieked when Lori said the answer um i, I also want to reference and mind you i know both of you uh were involved in uh, atlantis the lost empire which has a really epic instrumental score by james newton howard so yeah yeah amen to that it's an amazing score and that score session was awesome to be on the score stage for that 
Oh, very cool. Two book questions for you, um, starting with you, Don. What's the most recent Disney book that you've read? Oh, goodness. I read Marty Sklar, who was the head of um, Imagineering for a long time and, and started as a young man, you know, uh, editing the newspaper uh, at Disneyland and writing speeches for Walt Disney. He's written a couple books, and I've read one recently just about his um, career and kind of an inspiring book about what Imagineers do and that kind of thing. So that's probably the latest one. Fantastic. How about for you, Lori? I am about two chapters in, so forgive me because I have not finished it yet, but about two chapters in to Bob Iger's book because I've heard so many great things about it. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, ride of a lifetime. Absolutely. Um, Lori, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, what would it be about? Oh, my gosh. That is the hardest question anyone has ever asked me. <laughs> Those are hard questions because, you know, it's, it's like the whole world is, is in front of you and you just, it's not just what you're interested in either because a lot of times you write a book or make a movie about something you don't know anything about so that you can learn. Um, so that's a tough one. That, that's, that's so hard. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there's been so many books written about, you know, Disneyland and all of, and, and Walt and all of those. So you'd want to find an aspect of things, you know, I, I grew up here, like I said, and I loved Disney and it touched my life. And I guess if anything, what I would love to do is write a book that is more about how Disney impacts us as fans and as you know, kids growing up or adults and why we take it with us and why it holds such a special place in our heart because it, it, it does something to us um, from a soulful level. And I think I'd love to explore that more and just talk to people in terms of why it's so, so important to them and myself included. I would like to read that book. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to be a co-author. <laughs> that sounds great. All right, we, we, we set it out right here. Okay, All great. right. There is something about that, though, because you, the, you don't have the same feeling necessarily about Paramount or Netflix or something. But when you say Disney to people, it's probably because it's introduced so early in our lives. Um, and so it has an association that is nostalgic to begin with. Um, but there's something about that name and that culture that is... Um, gets us on a deep level. So uh, that's a really interesting topic. Yeah, definitely. Tom, could I ask you the same question or is it hard? Because I yes, know you are not. No, I was just stalling for time to try to avoid it. Oh, but okay. um, I, I think I, a couple things come to mind. I always wanted to write um, a inside baseball kind of book about how hand drawn animation was done because it's, you know, it's not gone now, but it's uh, changed quite a bit. And um, I love the analog, old school. Um, pencils and paper and paint and just the the funky way that that was done because it was very handmade movies and uh, I just think that would be fascinating for about three people out there to read that story about how those movies were made. I agree one of my favorite things working at feature animation I'll never forget is you know you kind of had a week of boot camp and one entire day you were an animator for a day I mean and I have you know as much skill as an artist as I did when I was two. I, I, I'm, you know, I can draw a great stick figure and a good smiley face. But, um, but there I was being able to animate squash and stretch and balls bouncing. And, uh, you know, it was such a highlight for me of, you know, being able to do that. So I think that would be a great book, Don. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I was even, even though um, 
it focuses on kind of a wide variety of animation. Don, I was thinking of your animation magic book, um, which was kind of a standard for me as I was growing up. So I'd love to see a, one focused on hand drawn. Yeah, it's it, you know it's so fascinating. The people that do it that are still out there are amazing, and the same is true of stop motion and puppet animation too. So maybe it's time to do kind of an updated animation magic book just to kind of update the techniques for everybody. Yes, a third edition. We need it. <laughs> okay, I'm on it. Okay, well, your last random Disney question. So this is different for every guest. The other ones are pretty standard with every guest. Um, so this might be a picking your favorite child type of question, but who would be your pick, Don and Lori, for the next Disney legend to be the focus of a feature-length documentary? Whether you work on it or not, but... Who would you like to see get their own documentary? Well, aside from Lori and I, which yeah. are the obvious, the obvious choices, <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, man, Mary Blair. Oh yeah, I agree. I was going to say someone else, but Don just Don nailed it. It's Mary Blair. Now, what, what were you going to say, Lori? Um, I was going to say a, a department, not just. You know, we've paid so much attention to the nine old men. Um, Mindy's done such a great job with the inking and painting. I'd love to see, you know, something about either music or sound um, and how those really, you know, when you think about the days of Walt, music and sound, music was everything. Sound was still in its infancy. And I'd love to be able to explore that more. Yeah, there's Frank Churchill in that kind of era. Um, exactly. Carl Stalling, all those guys would be a really interesting topic. Absolutely. Well, let's conclude. How can, um, and I loved all those picks, by the way, how can listeners follow your work? How can they catch Howard? And how can they follow you both? Um, and your, your, I know you have a, a website as far as your production company as well. Yeah, we're, we're out there. Um, there's a um, howardmovie.com. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a um, information on that website and a button to click that takes you to Disney Plus that you can watch the movie. Um, I think my I'm on Twitter and Instagram and things. I'm at Don Hahn, um, or you know, have a website too. So yeah, we're pretty easy to reach out there. Yeah, with a name like Corn Gable, you can find me pretty easily. Um, <laughs> I, again, like Don, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all of those wonderful things, and and um, and IMDb and and yeah, find Howard on Disney Plus. Well, I have to. Thank you both again, not only for your time, but for your really wonderful contribution um, for all of us who appreciate Disney history and, and really wanted this outlet to learn about such a, a treasured member of the Disney family. So Howard really, I, I say that um, as, a, as a fan and, and as someone who has really valued um, his role in in our collective lives. And so thank you for, for making this documentary and, and, and for sharing some of these stories today. Oh, thanks, Brent. That means a lot. Yes, thank you so much for your time. And thank you again to Don and Lori for joining me on Notably Disney. It was such a pleasure to talk with them and learn all about Howard Ashman and how this documentary came to light, some of the creative choices they made along the way. Uh, I would highly encourage you to check out Howard if you have not already done so. And certainly look into their other work. I mentioned the Waking Sleeping Beauty documentary, also on Disney Plus, that both of them um, helped spearhead. And I would point you to the direction of many of Dawn's books. I mentioned the Animation Magic book, 
Uh, he also has a number of other titles, including The Alchemy of Animation. And, uh, and Laurie's work also exists across many different realms of uh, Disney films. Um, I mentioned uh, at the top of the podcast, Maleficent. Um, she was a post-production supervisor on Atlantis, The Lost Empire, um, as well as for John Carter, one of my personal favorites, The Finest Hours, which starred Chris Pine. Um, so a number of really cool projects that they've been associated with. And uh, again, Howard is a fantastic documentary that you need to watch immediately. Thanks again, Don and Lori. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.